What happens when a health insurance company goes out of business? Well, we're learning that in real time thanks to the decline and fall of Bright Health Group. We'll discuss that today and how over-the-counter hearing aids could change the ENT landscape. After all, they're now being sold for less than $200 at Walmart. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. Everyone, welcome to the Flatlining Podcast. The podcast brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me as he has been is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, welcome back to the Flatlining Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me as always. Of course, and I'm glad we get to have you on to have our discussion today about uh, the decline and fall of Bright Health Group, and it's something that I, I know is going to affect a number of a number of patients and a number of practices out there. And for those of you that hadn't read the newsletter from last week, we, we at Fulcrum Strategies were able to confirm that, bef- I think before it got really public, was that Bright Health Group uh, announced that they're pulling out of their exchange plans in most of the states that they operate in currently, except for Florida and California. And first, Ron, why don't we start back at the beginning because Bright Health Group is one of these, uh, they were one of these private equity-backed groups, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, did they have something specific about them that made them stand out compared to other exchange plans that were being offered in many of the states they were in? Um, there are others like Bright Health, um, but basically Bright Health was a, a a group that was formed and entered into the market. They weren't an insurance company before they they started very recently. Um, and they saw market entry into these exchange plans, these Affordable Care Act subsidized plans, which are an individual, you know, individual members choose their plan. Um, they got some funding from some PE money. They're now publicly traded and they decided to become an insurance company. And so mm-hmm. they're different than, let's say, uh, Cross or United who sells an exchange product, but was an insurance company prior to this. This is their first foray into health insurance. Um, there are a few other companies that are similar to them, Friday's Health Plan and a few others. Um, but that's really what made them different than what you would think of as a Cigna, and Aetna, Blue Cross, United, et cetera. So mostly that they were they were the new they were the new kids on the block, you know, trying to offer something mm-hmm. different. Um, yep. Go ahead. Um, go ahead. Well, are they, it's not so much they were trying to offer some. They were the new kids on the block, getting into the what they have found to be a very difficult environment right. of being a health insurance company it's not as easy as it seems they seem to be um i don't want to say doomed from the start but almost doomed from the start because we we've talked about their their share price before and it peaked when it opened um mm-hmm. at i'm looking now at uh at their their stock price it peaked at 17 dollars a share when they opened uh as we're recording this they're at a dollar and five cents right now mm-hmm. um so what happened that caused them to immediately, you know, plummet down and to almost have, I mean, it looks like they had a few months of growth here and there, but other than that, it was generally a a straight shot down for them. Yeah. Well, what they learned um, is that again, it's not always easy to be an insurance company, that there's an awful lot of things behind the scene that happen, a lot of infrastructure and experience that, you know, a United Healthcare or a Blue Cross plan has um, that isn't easy to replicate. And what they learned is that if you get the wrong mix of patient or you don't infrastructure and health insurance is a great way to lose a ton of money. And they did. You mm-hmm. know, we've talked on previous shows where, you know, 5% of the population consumes 50% of all the healthcare dollars. Well, you get too many of that chronically ill population and there's no amount of premium you can sell to make up for it. And that's what happened to them. They suddenly realized that their costs were far exceeding their revenue. Um, and that's not a great way to run a company. No, or, or uh, have a personal budget for that matter. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when they started to lose out this money, and I know that they pulled out of a few other states um, earlier in the year, 
Was there a reason why that they've decided to pull out of almost all of them now, except for Florida and California? Was there a deadline they needed to hit by the end of the year? Well, yeah, so there was the, the reason is this. They came to the conclusion, and I think the very smart conclusion, that they were never going to be able to turn this around. They were hemorrhaging money like you couldn't believe, um, which is why the stock price, you know, is a buck. Um, and so it was time to sort of pull the plug. And doing it now, what it does for them is by getting out of the marketplace by January when they would have to renew, um, each of these states requires that these health plans have a certain amount of reserves. Um, and once you sort of pull the plug, some of those reserves get released because you're no longer going to need them. They've got to have reserves to pay what they call runout claims. Claims for all those members that received services in December, mm -hmm. but they're not going to pay until January or February. But they get a lot of that money released back to them to help make the company break even. My, I thought I read somewhere that they're going to get like $250 million released back to them mm -hmm. by pulling out of these states. Um, I don't know if they're going to be able to make a go of it as a company in California and Florida where they've got some different Medicare products. But basically what happened was some of their investors threw some additional capital at it and then required that they pull out so that this $250 million, um, you know, can be re released to them. My guess is, and this gets into what PE money um, is that their plan is to try to bolster the company, make it break even so it stops bleeding. And my guess is they're going to try to sell the plans in California and Florida. Um, is it possible from... Is, is it possible for them to make money on those plans given that they aren't able to make money on them currently? It, it's possible. I don't think it's possible for them to make the kind of return that their investors want because one of the things that happens with insurance companies, which is why you don't see a lot of really small ones, is that there's a lot of economies of scale. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you become efficient by size um, <clears throat> to pay for all the infrastructure and just having a couple of small plans in, in California and Florida doesn't really lend itself to making the kind of profit returns that their investors are looking for, which is why I think they're really trying to stop the bleeding, shore up what they have, and then sell it. Mm -hmm. They had some other products too, um, like New Health, for example. I'm assuming that the states that those were operating in are going away as well. Yeah, and those and all those states, those are going away, and a lot of those products really did never take off. Um, they just never got that sort of critical mass. Um, they were never profitable. It was, you know, as somebody who's been inside the industry for 36 mm -hmm. years now, um, part of me was like, geez, that isn't a surprise to me. You know, that what your business model was is extremely difficult to do. And the risk reward scenario is not one that I would have invested money in. Right. I, I want to get into the, the private equity discussion a little bit more in, in a few minutes. But first, I want to stay with, because you know, we're physician advocates at, at Fulcrum Strategies. What does this mean for the physician groups who currently have contracts with Bright Healthcare that are not in Florida or California? Yeah. So it means a couple of things. First of all, the good news is that you don't have to worry about your claims not getting paid. Okay, this, that these are regulated by the state Department of Insurance. They require reserve requirements. So, you know, all the services that you provide for these patients through the end of the year should get paid. There are state laws to protect you on that. Now, we're telling our clients, you know, don't wait to submit those claims. Don't mm -hmm. bond to them. I mean, as soon as December is done, make sure that all of your claims are submitted to the carrier so you can get paid. Um, but that's the good news. You're not going to be left holding the bag, so to speak. Um, now, the other thing it means is these patients are going to have to find another insurance company. Um, they aren't going to have the option of continuing with Bright because it won't be there. Mm -hmm. So these physicians should be talking to those patients about, you know, when you get that letter, sign up for somebody else and telling them if you want to stay, you know, with my practice, here are the options that you have that I work with. Um, because the, the, the really bad scenario will be, when some suspecting patient shows up in January and tries to present that Bright Health card, and that physician has to say, look, they're no longer in business. I can't mm -hmm. see you with that card. Right. Um, 
So those are the main things. Is make sure the patients know they need to switch to another carrier and get your clubs in quickly, but you will get paid. And, and I suppose that because Bright Health is going out of business, that that wouldn't violate, you know, a physician telling them, hey, you need to get on a different plan. Here are the other ones that I'm contracted with. That doesn't violate any part of their contract where it says you can't actively, you know, try to persuade a patient right. to join another health plan just because they're going out of business. Right, right, because it's a it's a foregone conclusion. You're not mm -hmm. that that provision in contracts that say you can't actively try to steer our customers away from us is a provision that means you're doing damage to us. Well, there's no damage to be done. You're not there anymore. They right. have to anyway. So you're right. So in many states, what will be the alternative to Bright Health for a lot of these uh, exchange uh, exchange patients? Because I know you know in the years after Obamacare, a number of states either had their exchanges shut down or they a lot of their plans pulled out. So for a lot of people, what are their what are their options other than, you know, Bright Health? Uh, and this is just the state of the affairs with these Affordable Care Act exchange plans. In a lot of states, Blue Cross is the only other option. Okay. Now it's very state and market specific. Some markets have multiple options, mm -hmm. but there's a large large parts of the country where without somebody like Bright, um, it's Blue Cross. Um, and and again, in North Carolina there are areas where it's only Blue Cross, but another parts of the state, there are, there are another option or two. Mm -hmm. Does that harm patients, do you think, by only having one option on the exchange plan? Well, you know, the design was to try to have competition um, and to be a competitive marketplace. And as an economist, I always like competition. It's always better mm -hmm. for the consumer. So uh, it's not something that I could directly say, well, you know, Blue Cross does a terrible job. They don't. They do a good job. But a lack of competition is usually not optimal for the consumer. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is going to be the same scenario. Well, if you're curious more about the stock price, we'll have it linked in uh, the show notes for this program. Uh, you can also find other articles that we've written where we've talked about Bright Health just by clicking on that stock symbol. Uh, I said I wanted to talk about private equity. Do you think that this decline and fall of Bright Health is a referendum on private equity-backed insurance plans? Or do you think that Bright Health is more of a fluke in this situation? Well, um, I don't think it's I don't think it's really a fluke, but I think it it points out that people need to understand. And this is not a I'm not making disparaging comments. It just is what it is. Mm -hmm. They need to understand what private equity is and how it works. Um, there is no greater mission here. It's not like people are going in and saying, oh, well, we're trying to, you know, feed the masses or provide health care to the unfortunate. It's an investment strategy by people. Right. And they would look for a return on that investment. But one of the things private equity companies, venture capital companies do the same thing, understand is it, it's like a, to use a baseball analogy, Babe Ruth struck out a lot mm -hmm. and he hit home runs. That's what he's known for. Okay. They know that these companies they invest in, that a decent percentage of them are going to go under and they might lose all their investment and they're looking for the home run. Well, what that, and you take Bright Health as an example, um, Bright Health isn't going to make it. Okay. They knew mm -hmm. that that was the risk and they're going to try to get as much of their money out as possible and they're going to take a loss. Okay. It also points out that part of the reason why Bright Health will probably go away completely and be sold is because they're not in it just to break even or to make a 3% margin. They want a return of something usually on the order of 20%. Mm -hmm. And so even if Bright Health was just break even, it probably was end up doomed because that's not good enough. And that's that home run. And, and so you, we need to use Bright Health as an example to understand what this is. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It just is what it is. And they're not in it for the mission of caring for the sick. They're in it for a return on they get in and out of market as they see fit. That's just, that's how that works. Mm -hmm. But thinking about it in the healthcare, you know, perspective, it, with all the other private equity health plans right. out there, should um, patients who are either, you know, if they're customers, if they're clients of some of these health plans, should they be worried that um, theirs might take a turn for the worse as Bright Health did? Well, I, you know, yes, I think they should be concerned about it. The nice part in this market, meaning fully insured, affordable care act kind of stuff, mm -hmm. is as the consumer, you're protected. You know, a while right. ago, I mean, we did, I know we did a show about the faith-based, you know, yep. health plans, if the you will. Shares, yeah. And part of, yeah, the health share, and part of what I pointed out is, look, they're not regulated. 
So they could leave you holding a bag. Here they can't because the state steps in. And if, for example, if Bright Health just closed up shop and said, that's it, I'm done, and fired everybody, each state would step in and pay those claims. They, mm -hmm. would, they would attach that reserve money and the state would make it whole so the patient doesn't get put in it. So you should be concerned about it because you might have to pick a different health plan, right. but not the same level of worried about, you mean I could, I could have all this cancer therapy and it not get paid and I then get billed by the, right. no, that, that's, there's protections on that. It's more on the level then of your employer decides to switch, you know, carriers for your, right. for your health exactly. plan. It, that's that's yep. the level of worry you might have yep. to have, as it sounds like uh, what, what you're exactly. describing. Yep. Do you think that private equity-backed um, physician groups may run into the same problems that private equity-backed insurance has? Or do you think that because those two, the two operating models are so different, it's it's not it's not fair to say that these are going to have the same types of risks. Oh, it's the same. It's absolutely fair. Okay. Um, because if you think about the private equity model, they don't have an alliance or allegiance to anything. They're not married to anything. Right. You know, if a private equity backed physician group is losing money, the private equity people will dissolve it. Mm -hmm. They'll break it up into pieces. They'll again because there isn't. It's not like you know. I work for the, you know, the Williams family company, and we've been in you know furniture making for three generations, and this is our no. It's just an investment. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's no personal attachment to it. So when PE money gets into physician groups, that same risk could happen. Of if I can't get my return, I'm out, regardless of what that does to the group and their patients. Well, we're going to have, we'll have more information about Bright Health Group on our website, uh, flatlining.net. You can find it in the show notes and any links to the articles as well as their stock price in case you're interested to see how far it goes down before they close up. Uh, you can find that at flatlining.net or in the show notes for this program. noticed from listeners of the Flatlining Podcast is that not all of you have signed up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do so now at flatlining.net. Each week, we share some of the most interesting and relevant healthcare news-related items we find and how they might affect you, your practice, or your patients. It also includes a weekly column from me. Sign up now for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. also want to talk about today on the program uh, a new thing where we have over-the-counter hearing aids and this was a story earlier this week you probably saw it I know I saw it on a couple national newscasts so I'm sure that um, most of our, our listeners saw it somewhere in the news and that's that Walmart uh, in particular Walmart is going to be selling over-the-counter hearing aids for under $200 and we had in our staff meeting this morning, Ron, we talked about a little bit what this might mean for ENT groups. But first, I'm, and I do want to get there, but I want to talk about um, this was a law, this was something that was passed into law in 2017, but HHS didn't enforce it until the Biden administration instructed them to do so. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about HHS only because when we talk about the No Surprises Act, there are a number of things there that are not being enforced, and HHS has kind of said, eh, well, sorry, we've sent out warnings. Why is it that HHS enforces some things and not others? Um, I think that question is directly related to whatever political wins and motivations are happening at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it's, you know, there, there are always parts of things, whether it's the FTC enforcing antitrust provisions of the laws or, you know, enforcing parts of the No Surprises Act or this versus that, that has to do with whatever party is in power and whether they think their political future is better served by either enforcing or ignoring a certain law or regulation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been that way for a long time. And it's not just related to healthcare. There's a lot of things that are like that. Um, and I think this is the case. You know, the you've got an administration who is really the one directing HHS. Um, who with the No Surprises Act is saying, geez, I don't necessarily want to enforce all that either because it's too hard or it wasn't my law. Mm-hmm. Um, and then looking at this law that wasn't their law either and going, hey, we like this, you know, do this now. Right. Um, I think it's all, you know, politically motivated. And the fact that we're this close to a midterm and um, the current administration is going to be able to say, hey, we're helping people get cheap hearing aids you know yeah it's that, probably their motivation that was going to be my next question because we are you know just weeks away from a midterm that biden's approval ratings are in the toilet and mm-hmm. i think they i think him and the democrats really needed a win uh going into this and i don't mean to say that you know cheap hearing aids are a bad thing but mm-hmm. i i think no. the timing on this is definitely political the, and the, it's just, i mean the, and not to get too far afield but you know, nobody's going to convince me that the timing of the, you know, student loan forgiveness program is not sure. politically motivated. Either. Mm-hmm. Everything in D.C. is politically motivated. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like, you know, this is not like this is standing out. It's just yeah. an obvious one, you mm-hmm. know. Absolutely. So I, let's talk a little bit about because uh, how it affects patients, because we've talked before about you know, healthcare innovations. There'd be technological innovations with uh, telehealth or, um, you know, electronic record management, things like that. With this particular issue, it seems like with the hearing aids, companies like Walmart and others have found a way to provide a piece of medical equipment that was very expensive at a more affordable price, and it's easier for someone to get. Generally, I think that's a good thing. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Oh, I do as well. And, and what and what people need to sort of understand in the bigger picture is this is not groundbreaking, mm-hmm. Okay. Let's think about other things that could be considered a piece of medical equipment or, you know, whatever. I'm currently wearing a pair of reading glasses that I got for under $20 at a pharmacy. Okay. Um, I own a knee brace that I bought at a pharmacy that was a lot cheaper than getting one through my orthopedic surgeon. We have a lot of things that you could take and say, well, that's a piece of medical equipment. Now, clearly my little reading glasses are not prescription strength trifocal. You know what I mean? They're not as good as what I could get from, but they serve my purpose for what I need them for. Mm -hmm. And my knee brace does what it is. It's not the kind of thing that if I were a professional athlete recovering from an ACL repair, that I would have a nice Jace knee brace that costs several thousand dollars. And, and, you know, hearing aids for $200 for a lot of people are going to serve the purpose that that person needs them for. Mm Mm-hmm. Are they the perfect tool for somebody with severe hearing loss who needs an audiologist to do the frequency, you know, hearing to, no, but that's not what even they're being designed. So, so yeah, I think it's generally a good thing. It's not the last thing that's going to convert to this kind of direct sale piece. Right. Um, and it shouldn't be the last thing. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say the same thing when you mentioned that people with severe hearing losses, I, you know, I wear prescription glasses every day. I can't read highway signs when I'm driving if I don't have them. I'm not going to put on a pair of reading glasses to drive down the highway. I'm going to, you know, wear my prescription glasses so I can actually see what's happening. There's a place for all of these things. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that, you know, ENT groups probably, um, I don't want to say they'll, they'll be nervous or skittish about a proposal like this, but, you know, it is something that was previously only done by audiologists that has now been taken away from that and is direct mm-hmm. to consumer. Should audiologists be concerned about people self-diagnosing their hearing problems and buying, you know, $200 hearing aids from Walmart, as opposed to seeing an expert audiologist who can do the fitting, who can do all the tests that determines exactly what they need? Well, I think, and and the advice I would give to uh, an ENT group or an audiologist is this. Um, You can resist market forces and good luck to you. Mm-hmm. You know, there there used to be a company by the name of Smith Corona that was the number one manufacturer of electronic typewriters who stuck their head in the sand when computers and word processors came about and said, nope, we're going to make typewriters. I mm-hmm. say used to be because they no longer exist. Um, IBM made electric typewriters as well. Mm-hmm. And they said, hey, you know what? We should probably start making word processors and computers. 
and they're still here. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that audiologists are going to go away. I mean, the marketplace is going to this. It's not a bad thing. So develop a product or sell the, you know, the non-prescriptions ones in your office, but also try to get those patients to understand that, look, let us evaluate your hearing loss first. Okay, because mm -hmm. that is still covered by insurance. And then when we're done evaluating your hearing loss, we can tell you what might be best for you and say, hey, Mr. Harrigan, you know, your hearing loss is actually fairly minimal. And if you don't want to run this through your insurance, there's actually a pair of hearing aids down in our little store there you can buy for $250. Um, and if it ever gets really bad, we'll keep watching hearing loss, then we might have to convert this. And the next person, they can say, Mr. Hanley, boy, your hearing loss is really very severe and very specific frequencies and to really be able to hear well you truly need and are going to benefit from an audiologist doing a professional fitting and adjusting and all that and then you're serving your patients well but mm -hmm. don't just say look you know if, if you you know if you think you're going to buy one from walmart we don't even want to talk to you anymore just go do it and leave our you know right. that's the smith corona model and it doesn't work well so let's talk a little bit about the specifics of uh, if an ENT group wanted to do that and to sell these over the counter in, in their office, how might they go about doing that? Because obviously they got to make sure that they're not, you know, trying to double dip the system and doing right. all these things for a fitted hearing aid and then at the same time selling them a, a non-prescription level one. Yeah. Well, again, like I said, first of all, the evaluation of the hearing loss, the hearing test, you know, the determination of how much loss you have and at what frequencies, that's covered. Okay. At that point, there's a decision whether the patient wants to not use their insurance and buy a $200 hearing aid or whatever they want to buy. What the group has to do is make sure the patient acknowledges that by signing a form saying, I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm doing it, I'm, I'm, it's my intention. Or the patient could say, I do want to file this under my insurance, which in all likelihood is probably going to be more expensive out of pocket for them depending on their benefit plan. Mm -hmm. um, and then the audiologist does all the other stuff, the fitting, the, you know, the adjustments, all that stuff. So it is a different product that you're getting. Um, but just like, you know, you could say it's a different product when you're buying a brand new car with all the warranty versus a used car. It's mm -hmm. a lot less expensive. You know, some people don't, can't afford and don't need the new car. Um, some people absolutely have to have it. So um, that's what they need to do is do the evaluation and then talk to the patient about what's right for them and what they can afford and what they want and then be able to offer them what it is that they want in whichever mm -hmm. scenario it is. Walmart's announced that theirs are going to be $199, although I think they're going to have a range of different levels of mm -hmm. product, the cheapest being $199. Um, Walgreens looks like there's off they're offering one as well, and theirs is going to be at um, $800 a pair. Um, the ones at Walgreens, CVS, Best Buy, and Walmart are also selling one that's in partnership with uh, Bose. So, you know, the high quality um, headphone mm -hmm. and, and speaker brand. Um, obviously, this is a, a way for certain te technology companies like Bose and Sony to get into these um, kind of these healthcare sort of things. Um, but what other companies do you see getting involved either on the, you know, selling these hearing aids or developing new hearing aids? And could we see the cost down come down even more than than just two hundred dollars? Oh, I, I think well, I don't know how much lower the low end stuff is going to get below two hundred dollars and be any kind of a viable or or decent product um, because again they're you know they're they're very small and you know they they're not incredibly cheap to make. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're going to see the development of a whole range of of price points from 200 to a thousand and maybe right. even more, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. that just like, and you take Bose, for example, you know, Bose makes some really great headphones that are expensive. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Sony makes some that aren't quite as bad. And so, you know, so I think you're going to have that whole range of, of quality and fit and feel that consumers are going to be able to sort of see what works well for them. Like almost everything else we buy, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, uh, something that should be a fairly homogenous product, and actually in most studies is, I mean, look at the difference in how much money you can spend for a cup of coffee. Right. Okay. Yep. I mean, it's it's a ground bean and hot water, you know. It's a dollar um, at McDonald's but, and seven at Starbucks. Right. But we like that as consumers, yes. and that's fine. Yeah. You know, that's our choice. 
you know. Mm-hmm. Walmarts uh, will be available in Colorado, Michigan, Missouri, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, and Texas, and they're going to make it nationwide soon. So if you're in some of those other states that we didn't mention and you're looking for this, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. I suppose you might be able to get it on walmart.com, but I don't know that for certain. When we talk about some of these kind of over-the-counter medical equipment, medical devices, um, and and other sort of over-the-counter drugs or supplements... Do you think that, especially because we were talking about uh, the internet before we started recording the program, do you think that with the rise of the internet, we're going to start seeing an over self-diagnosis of things that people don't really have and people trying to medicate in ways when really they should be talking to a doctor or in this case, talking to an audiologist as opposed to, uh, you know, just going out and buying hearing aids on their own or whatever the supplement might be that they're looking for? Well, to me, there's there's sort of two questions here. One sure. is the sort of self-diagnosis, which that train left the station years ago. I mean, I, I don't, there's very few doctors that I talk to that don't have wonderful stories about somebody coming in, either with a smartphone or with a, in the older days, print out from the internet saying, I know what I have. You know, they've already diagnosed. They've been on some website of you know, varying degrees of accuracy. They plugged in a couple of symptoms and, oh my God, I have malaria, you know? And then not only that, but I also know what I want prescribed because I saw the ad on TV. Mm -hmm. Um, And and doctors get frustrated because, you know, they're like, wait a minute, you know, let me explain to you why you don't have that or whatever. Um, And and I've been guilty of it. You know, you you say, well, that feels weird. And you you type in a couple of things in the internet. Oh my God, I could have that. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a neuroblastoma. No, you right. don't. Okay. So that's one thing. And and that is already there and doctors just deal with it. Now, the different thing is the self-treatment. Okay. Right. To me, things like hearing aids, reading glasses, knee braces, you know, the stuff that's still over-the-counter medications, those things are okay because the ability for those things to do harm is pretty limited. Now, once you start to get into things where the patient through self-treatment could actually hurt themselves, then I think we've got an obligation to make those, you know, physician only or only after prescription. And I get that you can overdose on over-the-counter medications. I get that, you know, that you can do things the wrong way that, you know, like you driving without prescription glasses is not a wise thing to do. Right. But that's different than certain drugs or certain other things where you truly can do damage. And mm-hmm. that's why I'm okay with the over-the-counter hearing aids. You know, the worst case scenario, it's not going to fit very well and it's going to help you hear very well. Right. I'm okay. It's not like, you know, suddenly it's, you're going to kill yourself. So, well, but, I, but to, those, to me, those are two different things. Well, self-treatment and I think, versus self-diagnosis. And I, and I think you're right. And I agree with you. And I think this makes a good transition to the third topic I brought on mm-hmm. here today which is um, Colorado's ballot initiative to legalize uh, psychedelic drugs um, Mm -hmm. under supervised use. I think that's what the term Mm -hmm. that they used in here. Because when a couple of months ago, back on the Friday Pulse Check, I mentioned that uh, a congressman's wife had had died and they had done the the autopsy and determined that she had ingested a um, poisonous leaf that had been found in a number of different weight loss supplements that were not approved by the FDA that were sold either online or in some of, you know, big chain stores. Um, and of course the supplement manufacturer said, well, our product is safe. You can't bear, you can't say that this is what caused her death, even though the, the coroner seemed pretty convinced about that. But now we're getting into the issue of we can, and we can loop legal marijuana into this as well, where the state of Colorado is interested in legalizing, um, psychedelic drugs, which federal classification has said that there is no legitimate medical purpose for these. So I guess I want to get your initial reaction because I know I would, I would, I would, (laughs) I would venture to call you libertarian ish. um, (laughs) And I, and I have a feeling that this is one of the issues where you might be a libertarian ish. Well, so, and I will, I will tell you, I'm I'm a little mixed on this one. Um, There's, Right now, with what I've been able to read about the the data on the potential uses of a lot of the things, the psychedelic substances, is there's not, from what I can see, 
really good data that shows there's any sort of clinical use. There seems to be some people who think or there's some sketchy data about the use for certain, you know, um, like therapy resistant uh, depression, certain mental health, but nothing that I would deem to be, wow, that, that really tells me. You know, mm-hmm. um, now uh, I'll flip over to it. I'm, I'm bouncing a little bit, but like some of the medical medical marijuana usages, there, there's clear data that shows that they have benefits. You know, some of the use for you know short term medical marijuana use for um, pain and nausea alleviation after chemotherapy. There, okay, I get that. Okay, um, but I first of all, I don't have good data that shows there's any value for this other than recreational. Okay. So there's one side of me that goes, man, I don't like this because these can be really harmful substances. Um, and for just recreational use and, you know, then there's the whole, well, where does it stop? Mm -hmm. Drugs. Is it, is it cocaine tomorrow? Is it, you know, where does it stop? So there's, that's the side of me that says, I don't like this, even with the fact that the Colorado law talks for it only adults over 21 and in some sort of supervised setting, and they've not defined what that is yet. I don't know if that means a to be in for at least two hours and there's a nurse and a crash cart there. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or is that just, well, there's Bob and he's gonna call 911 if you freak out. Okay? Right. <laughs> um, now, here's the flip side of the argument. This gets into my more libertarian action. Maybe it's more not wanting to be you know, duplicitous or hypocritical. Okay. Mm-hmm. Harmful substances ever known to man, and the only other vasal constrictor other than the cocaine based drugs has been legal for a long time, and it's called tobacco. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to take the high road and say we have to protect people from themselves and not let people take something that is potentially harmful that has no clinical value, which is one of the definitions of, you know, I think the definition for like the class one narcotic or something like, or schedule one controlled substance, high potential for abuse and serves no legitimate medical purpose. Mm -hmm. Okay. I would argue that cigarettes meet that definition to a T and kill more people than anything else we have right now. Well, then why are they legal? It's purely recreational. They have a high potential for abuse. We've proven that. They don't serve any legitimate medical purpose. As a matter of fact, they've been clearly proven to be one of the most dangerous substances you put in your body. Like I said, mm-hmm. it's one of the only other vasal constrictors other than like cocaine and crack. So how can I say you shouldn't be able to take a mushroom and have a nice feeling in a controlled setting, but you should be able to smoke a cigarette? Mm-hmm. So I, that, I, that's why I'm I'm a little conflicted on this, right? And I don't and I don't think that's an unfair um, I don't think that's an unfair you know confliction to have within yourself because I've mm-hmm. thought about the same thing before and I've thought about uh, with the U.S. is that we are considerably freer than than many other countries mm-hmm. even in the Western world even though I would you know venture to say I wouldn't mind living in some of those countries from time to time. But we are freer in many aspects, but where does the line of freedom and, you know, call it public safety, public health, you know, general constraint, where, where is that line? And I think it gets blurred. Um, and I think perhaps that the only real answer is letting it be controlled by the state level, which is what we've seen with marijuana, both with the mm-hmm. um, medical purposes of it. And then here, like in Michigan and Colorado, was, mm-hmm. I think Colorado was the first one to have yeah. uh, legal recreational marijuana as well. Yeah. Um, and having that be allowed in many circumstances, um, although it's interesting to see how that's regulated in other states, because, for example, here in Michigan, they can't purchase radio or TV ads so nearly all of the billboards are marijuana billboards because that's the only advertising they're allowed to purchase. So yeah. it's it, we even then we have different regulations on some of these things. And at least for now, what it appears to me with Colorado's decision to look at uh, psychedelics is that it seems to be for certain um, mental health uh, diseases right now, either depression or PTSD. Um, and at least it's got some sort of supervision. And, but I agree that you're right that there's a difference between having a nurse in a crash cart and, you know, 
Bob from down the street ready to call 911 if something happens. Um, Voters in Oregon allowed to have one particular psychedelic uh, Mm -hmm. approved a few years ago, back in 2020, uh, in supervised facilities. But in Oregon right now, they haven't opened any of those facilities yet. Um, and the state health officials are still finalizing regulations. So at the bare minimum, it seems like if this passes in this next election cycle, it's going to be a few years before you even have this in Colorado. Yeah, and, and again, it's it, like, the, like all things, the devil's in the detail. In Oregon, I think it was um, psilocybins mm-hmm. were the yes. thing that was allowed. And what they're having trouble with is and this is why there are none of them open yet is all the all the rules around what it takes to be that kind of certification Mm -hmm. because well it's not an automatic or it's not um uh always the case one of the problems is um, psilocybin exasperate heart conditions and so one of the things that they're saying in the oregon thing is you're going to have to have some there that can handle you know a, a defib or whatever. So you're probably going to have to have a crash cart, somebody there that is um, capable of using it. And the other thing that's hanging up Oregon, and this gets into the doubles, is who the hell's going to insure that facility? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're going to have to have, once you've got a, you know, a professional individual there, a nurse, whatever, or a doctor, whatever, um, and you've got a this, you know, known potential heart condition, you're going to then have to have some sort of professional insurance. So, you know, we may never see any of this stuff actually come to fruition if they can't finally clear, um, you know, some of these other hurdles. Um, definitely, you know, Colorado, this this thing won't pass, and then the next day suddenly you can go into, you know, right. your, your local corner store and get yourself some magic mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably good because, again, and I'm not saying there isn't the possibility of some beneficial use of this. I that, that It is a little new and a little sketchy for my but But, you know, if somebody's really dealing with some very serious you know, resistant mental health issue, depression or whatever, and, and mellowing out on a couple of mushrooms and in a controlled setting and, you know, helps them out. Hey, uh, that's not too bad. I just don't know what all those details are, but it mm-hmm. definitely won't happen overnight. I, I do want to mention, uh, well, I'll, I'll mention that before this is that the, the, there is a timeline set in the state law for 2024 for some uh, of these drugs and the 2026 for some of these other ones Yeah, a, included mm-hmm. in these um, are, uh, the mushroom, and it would allow adults to grow, possess, and use mushrooms containing chemicals, uh, psilocybin, which you mentioned, and um, psilocin, and it would decriminalize mm-hmm. three plant-based psychedelics, including mescaline, except, interestingly, it ex- specifically excludes the peyote cactus, um, right. which is right. interesting to me because of the uh, Oregon v. Smith decision, which said mm-hmm. that you can't consume peyote and claim that it's part of your religious uh Right. Your religious practices, you can't get unemployment benefits after you're fired from that. Um, it also ha- uh, includes uh, ibogaine, which is the root bark of an iboga tree, uh, and then mm-hmm. a compound from an Ashura brew. Um, mm-hmm. And the, you know, then it has to have the state has to create the regulations, just as we were talking about. And obviously, you can't sell the drugs outside of those um, facilities. You know, with some of these things, it's I wonder sometimes about how well these things can be enforced. Um, you still have underage smoking, despite that the smoking mm-hmm. age is 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, you still yeah. have underage vaping use. Um, and you have mm-hmm. tons of school districts across this country uh, suing um, Juul and some of these other corporations because of that. Um, and you still have underage marijuana use. So how do you think it, it will be possible to have similar, in, if anything, just for the safety of it, to be able to enforce some of these laws regarding age for these psychedelic mushrooms? or any of these other uh, psychedelics that'll be legalized in, in Colorado. Well, and, and, you know, it, take the, you know, the legalized recreational marijuana use, whether it's, you know, in the States, um, as you point out, it's not like there wasn't mar- marijuana use in Colorado before that. Mm-hmm. It's not like there isn't continued illegal marijuana use in Colorado. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this isn't somebody who just tried mushroom yesterday and said, Hey, I mean, this stuff's already happening. Um, I think part of what the the hope is, and maybe it's real, is you know we spend an awful lot of money in this country pursuing things like you know illegal marijuana use or possession charges and stuff like this, and I think some people have just thrown up their hands and go, and it's not 
working. You know, the the war on drugs was lost a long time ago, and we don't appear to be winning it or have the the will or desire to win it. So why don't we take some of the stuff that ain't so damn bad and try to put some regulations around it and mm-hmm. make it legal, and then maybe the illegal use of it will go down. Um, right. You know, we've had drinking age laws at 21 or before that 18 for a long mm-hmm. time. You know, I mean, are there still 16 year old kids, you know, getting bombed on a weekend? Sure. I mean, so let's not hide our heads in the hand and say that this is going to solve that problem. I think they're just trying to say, well, if it's going to happen, let's try to regulate it somewhat, make it as safe as possible, um, get some tax money from it. Um, I mean, I, I saw one, you know, one uh economist, he was doing a little tongue in cheek and said, you know what, if we would just legalize all forms of, of drugs and actually get it taxed, we don't have a deficit problem anymore. <laughs> no, and obviously that's, that's not completely accurate, but right. <laughs> the states that have legalized marijuana are drawing some pretty nice tax revenue from it. You know, um, I don't know if you or uh, your son or, or any of your kids have, have ever played uh, Grand Theft Auto, and but it, you know, a lot of there's there's a lot of parody in there of, of mm-hmm. real life in that game, and there's a, one instance in particular where there's a radio ad where they're trying to get people to vote for legalizing you know medical cocaine, and um, of course that game came out in 2013, but how far away do you think we are from people making some of those proposals? Um, further down the road. And I'm sure we'd see Colorado or Oregon be the first just because they were the first of marijuana and, and now it was psychedelics. But, you know, where does it end with what we decide with what has a medical use and what doesn't? Well, I, I think and I hope that there is a line. Um, and in some respects, we've kind of seen it. And we've seen how bad it gets to cross the line. And what I'm talking about is the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. Okay, Um, the opioid crisis started largely through prescription um, physician written use of opioids, and it exploded from there. So what I hope and what I think is going to be that line, and it's going to be partly the medical community, and it's going to be partly, you know, politicians understanding what happens in industry, etc., is the things that are truly very damaging. So I would say there's a night and day difference between, you know, some of these substances, you know, mar- or, uh, marijuana and and mushrooms and stuff and cocaine. Right. Just like there's night and day difference between, you know, me taking a little bit too much Afrin um, mm-hmm. and, you know, fentanyl. Right. Um, Okay, and that's where I hope the line gets drawn, that when somebody tries to push and say, let's legalize cocaine, that the medical community steps forward and goes, you are kidding me. Do you know what that does to the cardiac system? Do you know what that, you know, that's very different than, you know, taking some of these mushroom substances and going, you know what, there can be an exasperation with an existing cardiac issue. Um, Mm -hmm. I hope that's where the line, that's where, in my opinion, should be. Right. Well, and you know, perhaps um, with the way that we've been doing medical marijuana in the states where it's legal and, and in the way where it appears that Colorado and Oregon are doing um, legalized psychedelics, it, perhaps because it's on a smaller, more independent level, you won't have the, you know, at the very least, the profit motivation that you have with some of the opioid crisis, um, either by the drug manufacturers or, or by the uh, pharmacy benefit managers. Yeah, I, you know, I hope so. Um, again, that that would be the right way to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, if I can find it, I'll throw in that that ad from from Grand Theft Auto just so we can have a laugh. If I if I can find, it, I'll throw it in after the segment. But well, uh, you go ahead and and just so that because I was curious after I said it and I I looked it up. Um, last year, Colorado earned four hundred and twenty three million dollars in marijuana tax revenue. Mm-hmm. That ain't chump change. So, no. you know, that, and I'm not, I'm not trying to make the push that everybody should legalize. I'm just saying there's a lot of factors involved. Right. I, and I will say, I don't know what Michigan's tax income has been since they legalized it in 2018, but uh, I wish some of it would go towards the roads. Uh, and that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because yeah. Governor Whitmer, she was elected at the same time that they had legalized, uh, uh, they voted to legalize marijuana here for recreational use. And she ran on fixing the damn roads and... I, hmm, my area of Michigan, I've yet to see that, but 
Uh, I suppose if that's more anecdotal than anything else, I'm sure they would prove me wrong because they paved a street somewhere in Midland or up north somewhere that I would never drive on. But uh, Ron, we're just about out of time, so I just want to say thank you for coming on uh, the Flatlining Podcast again. No problem. Thank you. pharmaceutical industry is at it again. They don't want you to vote yes on Proposition 208 and legalize medical cocaine. For millions of Americans, it's the medicine that helps them get through the day. A God-given plant strained through gasoline in the jungle by a man with missing teeth. Vote yes on Proposition 208 and legalize medical cocaine. Well, just a reminder to everyone that that is parody, and we are not, in fact, advocating for medical cocaine. Uh, let's do our final thought now. A few weeks ago, I shared the horrible idea that ended up as a TikTok trend, where you are supposed to cook your chicken in NyQuil or other cold medicine products. Now, there's another new and also bad trend. DIY dentistry. Uh, that hashtag has more than 2.6 million views on TikTok, and fortunately, it isn't technically dental healthcare, like what you'd see a dentist for. However, these supposed DIY hacks are for dental cosmetics. Still, not safe to do at home or on your own. Dr. Ruchi Sahoda, a dentist from Fremont, California, and spokesman for the American Dental Association, said that she understands why people might want to cosmetically adjust their smiles, but that she doesn't know how you could do it safely by yourself. There's several different products on Amazon claiming to be DIY dental kits. But when Kaiser Health News bought some of them, they found that many of them did not even come with instructions. Amazon has since removed some of those products from its website. Dr. Sahota said that if people want to learn more about affordable and safe ways to have orthodontic treatment, which is not generally covered by dental insurance, they should check out the website Mouth Healthy. It has the approval of the ADA. So if you take anything away from this, take away this. 10 out of 10 dentists agree that DIY dentistry is a bad idea. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howard, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week. <laughs>